Hey, Heartland, how are we? Those of, those of you online as well, I will own it. I lost the match on the obstacle course. There was a race, but another summer is coming. More Heartland summer nights will be on their way, and an obstacle course will return, and I will be ready. So, uh, hey, incredible day that we get to spend together here. It already has been a really special day. As Dan said, we're finishing a series that we have been in for seven weeks now uh, called Ancient Paths. Finding your way with Jesus. That sometimes kind of navigating this journey that we have with Jesus isn't always easy and we can get stuck or kind of slow down or not even know how to start. And God has given us some paths that we get to walk to him in order to get to know him better. And it all kind of came out of this verse back in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 6, that says, this is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. And so for the past seven weeks, we've been standing at the crossroads and looking and seeing the ancient, proven, good, helpful, clear paths that God has given us. Paths like the path of scripture, and the path of prayer, and the path of community, and the path of generosity, and the path of Sabbath, and story, and service, and these are paths that God gives us that when we walk these paths, we grow in a relationship with him and also with one another. We get to experience him in a deeper way. And so now as we wrap up this series, the question we have to ask ourselves is, will we walk these paths? Or will we just kind of look back on this series and be like, oh yeah, that was kind of a cool series where we learned a couple new things, but I think the question God wants us to walk out of here with is, will we walk them? Will we walk these paths as we leave this series? And so today we're gonna to talk about one final path. There certainly are more paths that we could have talked about, but we're gonna talk about one final path before we jump into a new series next week. So come back ready for that. And today we're gonna to talk about the path of worship. The path of worship. And I wish I could know as I say that word, what kind of goes through every single one of your minds. Because I think it's a confusing, big, a little bit of a strange concept, right? What is worship? Why do we, why do, we do this thing? And, and do, when you say worship and I say worship, are we thinking about the same thing? You know, what is it that just we spent the past, you know, 20, 25 minutes or so doing as we, as we started off these services, as we have them here, or if you're watching online as well, I think sometimes we forget that worship is kind of a little bit of, of a strange concept. And even when I say the word worship, I think there are some of you who you love, you love worship. I mean, it, there's just something that resonates deeply within your heart when we worship. And all you need is, is for someone to say the word worship and to hear the strum of a guitar and you're, and you're gone. And you're just running off into worship and giving God the praise that he is due. And it's something that maybe comes very easily for you and it's a big part of your life. And I think there are also those of us that, that maybe it doesn't come as easily. It doesn't quite resonate as quickly. And for you, maybe even you stand in a church service like this, or you hear worship music, or you see a worship service happen, and you're just kind of looking around and like, okay, what, what is it that's different for them than it, than it is for me, right? And, and you wonder, is this, is this something that, you know, is just kind of like an acquired taste? Kind of, kind of like... Uh, like jazz music or drinking coffee without creamer in it or blue cheese? Like, is there, what is it that it just comes more naturally for some people than it does for others? 
And I, I think it hits us that way because it is kind of a, a strange concept, especially if you are newer to church and you come in and you see what's happening and you see we're looking around and we're all standing in kind of one direction and we're singing these songs and things are happening. You're like, what's going on right now? So just speaking of strange for a second, you might be wondering, hey, why am, why am I the one up here talking about worship? You know, we've got this incredibly talented leader like Anna, other, other people who, who kind of serve in these worship leader roles that could teach us about this topic. And uh, I will tell you that many years ago in a land far, far away, I actually spent some time as a worship pastor. And I do not say that to impress you. I definitely do not say you to invite you to dig through any social media to see any of that in action. I have wiped that all from the interweb. Um, and it is a good thing for your benefit that I am not still a worship pastor. <laughs> okay. um, but I am also not the only uh, one of Heart- Heartland's lead pastors who has been a worship pastor, Dan Jacobson, more recently has served as a worship pastor for a church. Is that right, Kristen? Yeah, I think he was probably better than I was because he actually has gotten an invitation in a couple weeks to go to a church in the, elsewhere in the Midwest and lead worship. And I think you should take it. And I think we should stream the service here to Heartland and we can worship with you as you do. Um, and, and not only the two of us, there's actually other pastors who have served in worship roles. Craig Cheney, way back in the day, Uh, also has led worship teams and led worship. So what you have here are three of the three members of Heartland's lead team, all with prior experience as worship leaders. And so I know we're we're searching for our next full-time worship pastor to lead that charge here, but we did tell our staff and our team and our board and say, hey, if we can't find that person, the three of us are ready to step, step in. And we could kind of form a little bit of a musical trio and come together and bring the best of our talents. And if, and if we did, it might look a little something like this. I try to get that out of your memory for the next few moments we have together. This is what our creative team does during meetings where I think we're accomplishing things, but no, this is what they're working on. Uh, and if that's a little too old school for you, if the chest hair bothers you, um, we, we have a newer, a newer version of us that we're working on this right here. A little more hip and with it, with the times. <laughs> oh, talk about strange. If worship wasn't strange enough, I just made it even more strange. A little bit of my history with worship. Uh, I grew up, my parents uh, took me to their church, a traditional church, small traditional church. And I went with my three older siblings and them and we sat in these pews and there was choirs and, and robes and organs, and we sang out of these, these hymnals with dots and lines all over them. And I didn't really know what was happening. And so I just watched. For many years, I just, I just watched. What I did know is that if I minded my manners and I didn't get in too much trouble, I get too many dirty looks from my mom during the worship service, well, then I got a free donut and a cup of watered-down lemonade in the church lobby after the service. Anyone else? Yes. Uh, and then later on in life, around college, I got invited to go to a different kind of church, one a little bit more like Heartland, not, ne- not nearly, not nearly as, as just kind of awesome and with all that. We had, we had, instead of screens on the walls, there was a big sheet that was on the wall and you projected lyrics on there. It was one of those old school overhead projectors. Remember that? And instead of a choir and organ and hymnals, there was a couple people up there playing guitar. And, and they would really, really kind of get into it. It was very different than what I had observed, what I had watched growing up. And every now and then they would just kind of close their eyes for a while and I didn't really know what was happening. It felt like there was something happening, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. And then every now and then one of them would kind of raise one or both hands up in the air like they were high-fiving invisible people around them. But I didn't know why. And so I just watched. 
Because I think sometimes when we encounter something that is so big and so strange or maybe new to us, we just kind of watch. And the opportunity for all of us is how do we stop watching and how do we start worshiping? You know, even right now, as, as you're watching online, this isn't an experience meant to be watched. If you're in there in the room, this isn't an experience that's been designed to be watched. It's one to be invited into and to worship. But how do we cross over that threshold? And I think it's, it starts by we have to understand what we mean, what we're talking about when we bring up this path of worship. So, so we have to talk about worship because of how big a word it is. We have worship music. We have worship bands We have worship radio stations. We have worship wars and churches that entire churches and denominations have divided over this topic of worship, over what instruments you can and can't use, or if you can or can't use them, or what songs are allowed to be included in worship services that it's caused that much division and strife within the church. That we have worship leaders and worship centers and we have worship services that we schedule our calendars around. Even my my seven-year-old, When I tuck her in at night and we kind of go through the whole routine, the last thing she says is I'm leaving the room and she has this little Alexa speaker on her nightstand. And she says to this little Alexa speaker, she says, hey Alexa, play some worship. And and Alexa plays it. Even Alexa knows what worship is. But do we, do you and I, do we understand what worship is? And so where we're going today in in this message is, is I think that we tend, we can very easily have a very confused or narrow view of what worship is, a narrow understanding of what it is, a very limited grasp of what worship is. And all I wanted to do today is I just want to open that up. And I want to expand our understanding of what worship is, of something that is such a pivotal part of life in our church, in the church, in our lives as followers of Jesus. And I want to talk about how, just how important worship is and to invite all of us to make worship a bigger part of our lives. And so to start, to get us kind of going, uh, how about a definition? Uh, Dallas Willard is a favorite author of mine and he spends a lot of time, he has spent a lot of time talking and writing about this topic of worship. And I kind of pieced together a lot of the different things that he said about worship and I, and I put them together into, into this definition for us. And I want us, let's put this up here and, and as we read this, let's, uh, let's read this together. What do you say? Can we do that? All right. So worship, the intentional turning of ourselves to God and ascribing to him all the greatness and goodness and glory that belongs to him. Now let that kind of sit up there for a second and just look over those words. Let's talk through them for a second. That worship is intentional, which means that there is a decision involved in our worship, that there's a shift that's being made. In fact, today you made a decision to be here. You made a decision to to watch online. There was a decision that you made that even by making that decision, you're giving worship to God, that you are glorifying God, because there's a lot of ways that you could have chosen to spend this time, but you made an intentional decision to do something, to turn, that there's this turning of ourselves. What Jesus would say is yourself is your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength, that you're turning those parts of yourself and what are you turning them to? You're turning them to God, that as we sing, we're singing, we're we're worshiping, we're praising God and we're ascribing, we're giving to him all of the greatness. We're recognizing that he is mighty that he is great, but he's also good, that he's virtuous and tender and true and pure. And we're giving him the glory 
the renown, the fame, the, re- the, the recognition that belongs to him. That we're not giving anything to God that he doesn't already deserve or doesn't already have, but we're recognizing those things and we are turning ourselves toward those things and we're making that decision. Now notice that in, in this definition that Willard doesn't say anything about how worship happens because sometimes one of those ways we can get narrow in our understanding of worship is that it has to look a certain way. It has to happen a certain way. We think, we think of services and, and songs and music and those things certainly are worship. They can be worship, but worship can be so much more than those things. Worship can be music and songs. It can be praying. It can be silence. It can be dancing. It can be painting or sculpting. It can be worshipful to sit in a conversation with a friend. It can be, it can be worship to hold a baby. Worship can be laughing, cooking, gardening, sitting at a campfire underneath the stars above you, writing, all of these things, anything that brings us to an awe of God is worship. And so we open up our understanding to that. And so to help us keep kind of unfolding this understanding of worship, I want us to look at a scene in the book of Acts. So right after Jesus had uh, ascended into heaven, he leaves behind a, a handful of his followers and, and he kind of entrusts them his mission. And he says, hey, everything you've seen me you know, teach and do, now I want you to go so that, so that what has been happening can become a movement that would spread across the entire world. And, and they begin to do that. And they start kind of in, in, in that part of the Middle East and it spreads out to the Mediterranean. And two of those movements leaders were these guys named Paul and Silas. And somewhere along the way, they, they encounter this, this girl who is in, kept, kept in slavery and her master uh, is, is with her and he's using this girl to make him money. And she's actually are also possessed by this, by this demon. Uh, you talk about some strange stuff. Yeah, but so Paul and Silas come across her and, and they get rid of the demon. And so all of a sudden, this girl is of no use to her master. So they freed her from this demon. They've essentially freed her from slavery. But this guy is not very happy about what Paul and Silas has done. So he reports them to the Roman government. And they get thrown into jail. And they get thrown into the stocks. And this is the way the passage gets written. This is how the story goes. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas, they're in prison, remember. And they were praying and singing hymns to God. And all the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose and the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought that all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. Now I wanna push the pause button there for a second, we're gonna come back to it. But there are so many things I love about this passage when it comes to worship. Usually we don't read this passage and talk so much about worship, but it's, it's such an amazing scene. Because one of the things I love is, that, is, is where worship is happening, that these guys are in a prison cell and they're worshiping. There's, there's no worship band, there's no worship leader, there's, this isn't a scheduled worship service. And yet what these guys are doing are praying and singing psalms, singing hymns to God. Now, just, just to be clear, when it says that they're singing hymns to God, they're not singing great is thy faithfulness or how great thou art, as great of hymns as those are. Those oldies wouldn't be written for another 1900 years. So what Paul and Silas were probably singing were the psalms, the hymn book of Israel. 
things that, that they had learned, and they're praying them and they're singing them. They're using these things to intentionally turn themselves to be in awe of God in the midst of, these, of, this, of this prison cell that they were in. And then here in the midst of this, this situation, something incredible happens. In the midst of this dire circumstances, one of the most compelling pictures of, of, of worship happens. And it says that as a result, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. I've never lived through an earthquake. Some of you, some of you have. The closest thing I've come to living through an earthquake was on some ride at Universal Studios. So that's as close as I get to being in an earthquake. Some of you have lived through them. You felt the ground shake beneath you. You felt the walls begin to move and because of it, doors begin to, to start to open because the walls are, are changing around you. You've, you've felt that force and that power all around you. And it's this picture that that's what's happening as Paul and Silas are in the middle of this worship service. And I think that's important for us to hold on to because in worship, the powers of heaven intersect the powers of this world and things change because of it. Things get shaken because of that. When we worship, heaven intersects with earth. And when that happens, it shakes things. I believe when we worship, it shakes things. I believe when we worship, the powers of heaven intersect the powers of this earth. And as I say that, you might be thinking, okay, that's kind of cool, but um, the walls are still here. You know, we just spent a good bit of time worshiping. We've spent many years, and to our knowledge, over the past 10, 11, 12 years we've been in this building, none of the walls have shaken. None of the floors have come apart. None of the doors have randomly, you know, kind of been thrown open during our worship services, and you'd be right. In fact, sometimes the walls do shake, but that's because Rod, our incredible sound guy back there, decides to push the subs a little bit to 11 so that we can get just a little bit more kind of oomph in these speakers. And so it shakes the walls, it shakes us a little bit. But, and I think sometimes we can read about some of these things in Acts and be like, well, that was, that was really cool, but is that happening today still? I think so. It might look a little different. There might be these walls that are getting shaken, but there are other things in this world and in our lives that get shaken. I believe when we worship, it shakes things, friends. I believe it shakes things around us. I believe it specially shakes things in us. I think that when we worship, things get shaken, things get uprooted, things get turned around when we worship. And just as we can have a narrow understanding of what worship is, and sometimes we think it's just singing, or when or, or how it happens, I think we can also have a narrow understanding of just how significant a thing it is when we worship. I want us today to see that worship shakes things, and I want to tell us about three things that I've seen worship shake in my life and in others. Three things that worship shakes. First of all, worship shakes our circumstances. If there is a prison cell that we kind of live in, there's, one of them would be our circumstances. And when we worship, it shakes those circumstances. Look at how the story began. It says, about midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. About midnight. You know what the darkest part of the night is? It's midnight. It's exactly halfway between when the sun sets and when the sun rises. That, that they were in this, this physical darkness, as if, as if it wasn't bad enough that they were in a prison cell in the stocks. They were actually in the darkest part of the night, and what I know is that every person in here has had midnight moments in your life. When 
when there is no trace of light behind you or before you, no trace of hope for you to hold on to. You've had midnight moments, midnight seasons. Maybe you're in one of those right now. And if you haven't, it's only a matter of time until we find ourselves back in one of these midnight moments or seasons. And Paul and Silas found themselves in one, not just physically, but I think also emotionally, when there was no trace of light. And yet, in the most dire of circumstances, they choose to intentionally turn themselves to God with their whole mind, heart, body, soul, and give him all the greatness and goodness and glory that he was due. Because worship shakes our circumstances. It reminds me of something that a friend of mine who's a worship leader, um, who used to always tell us, especially before we would begin our worship services and then would kind of use to, to, as as he led us, led our church, he would say that worship is a problem for our problems. Worship is a problem for our problems. And what I think that means is that we go about our, our lives and sometimes we can come in here and we can feel like we need to leave all of our problems at the door. Or we need to roll them up in a paper sack and stick them up under our chair. And then when we leave, then we're going to take them back on. And I think God wants us, when we worship, he wants us to bring our circumstances and bring our problems to him so that he can shake those things and shake the power that they have over our lives. Because when we have problems, typically they become the biggest thing in the picture for us. But when we worship, what we are intentionally saying is there is something, someone who is bigger than all of those problems that I'm going to invite into the picture because worship is a problem for my problems. That God's power is greater than my problems. And what this means is that when it feels hardest to worship is when we most need to worship. That we don't worship because God needs it. He's deserving of it, but he doesn't need it. We worship because we need it. We don't worship because we feel like it. It's easier to worship when we feel like it. But we most importantly need to worship when we don't feel like it. Because I know that there's times when we come into these services and, and, and you're tired. I'm tired. Or you've had a week or a month or a season. And it's hard to, to, to bring yourself to become in awe of something. Maybe you're even, because of what you're going through, you're questioning God's own goodness to you. And so why would you want to worship him? Why would Paul and Silas, for doing what God would want him to do, now being in the prison, why would they choose to worship? Because because it's not when we feel like worshiping that it's most important. It's, It's when we need to, when things are hardest. I think sometimes we come in here, I come in here, I'll speak for myself here, and sometimes I come into worship or times of worship, I take this service just for an example. And it's like I have this invisible meter inside my heart. And when that meter reaches a certain point, well, then I'm going to worship. I'm going to start singing along. Maybe I'll even raise a, a kind of a hand out. And maybe even, and it's even though I'm, you know, traditional kid raised and kind of Midwesterner, you've moved down from, from the frozen, chosen north uh, where I used to live. Like, you know, it's a little stoic, but um, I, I might even raise a hand. When that meter hits a certain point. And if I had a really good week, that meter comes in and it's already a little high. If I had a really hard week, that meter's a little bit low. And then I depend on what's happening in the service to bring me to a place of worship. You ever do this? It's like if, if they play my certain songs, and I've told them what they are, they never play them. Uh, if I tell them my certain songs, then that meter kind of, that needle goes up a little bit. 
and, and maybe like, you know, they jump the octave or Rod pushes the subs a little bit more. To, you know, they just kind of go crazy with it. It's just the, the song is clicking. Everyone around me is singing. It's just one of those experiences. The room is full. All of a sudden that needle kind of hits the point And then I'm like, all right, now I can worship. And that is completely backwards, I think, of what it should look like. Because I'm depending on these people to do what's not their responsibility. They set the table and they lead me into worship, but I'm the one who makes that choice. There's one Holy Spirit and no one else, including this team here or me or any of our other pastors, is that Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who opens us up, but we get to partner with him as we bring ourselves, posture ourselves. As Dan said, sometimes we use our bodies to kind of coach our souls along. And so if you've ever been here in a worship service and you see some lyrics up on the screen and you're like, you know what, I'm kind of having a hard time singing those today because I'm not even so sure I believe them. One, just good for you for being so honest with yourself that you'll say that. And two, good for you for being here because maybe that's all the worship that you could bring. And maybe in that moment, it's a time when, when others around you can almost be worshiping on your behalf. But I also know is that when, when we sing those songs, even if we have trouble believing them, it's the, it's, the, it's the words that our souls need to hear. It's the things that we need to hold on to. I think so many of the Psalms that we read that, that talk about God's power and his greatness and his goodness, I don't think these were written by people who were absolutely convinced of it all the time. I think they were written by people so that they could later on pound those truths into their chest in their times of worship and singing and fight for what they knew to be true about God, his greatness and his goodness and his glory. And so they tried, they, in worship, it was, they were able to hold on to those things and live with those things in mind. Now to be clear, worship shakes our circumstances. It doesn't always shake us out of them. It won't, worship won't take away the cancer. Worship doesn't always take away the COVID or the circumstances or the loss or whatever it is that you're facing, the transition that you're in the midst of. But worship will shake you from the anxiety that those circumstances bring, from the size that those things look to be, from the fear and the worry, maybe even the apathy that we live with and come into worship with. When we worship, when we choose to worship, it can shake us from those things because worship shakes our circumstances. Second thing, worship shakes. Uh, worship shakes our control. Talk about a jail cell. Control is something that, this is hard, y'all. I, uh, I like control. Anyone else willing to admit it? I love being in control. We're, we, I think we generally all love to be in control, but worship shakes us out of those things. Anyone been reminded lately that you're not in control? Do you have, anyone have toddlers? You're not in control. Um, anyone been in traffic lately? Yeah, I think traffic was created by God as a daily reminder in the morning so that we would know you're not in control. Yeah. And yet we still try to be in control of it all. Um, I've spent a lot of time getting to know the DMV here in Kansas. Uh, you know, I'm registering two cars, a couple of drivers. And, and uh, so, you know, I've had to, had to get... Um, Cars tagged and registered, found out here in Kansas, you got to get them inspected first. So then I left and went to go get them inspected, get all that paperwork, provide 17 forms of identification, schedule my appointment online, wait online, show up, be told that I'm not there in time. So I have to go back, schedule another appointment, come back, get told I don't have the right paperwork. So then I schedule back, bring more identification, get more inspections done, 
The DMV is really great at letting you know you're not in control. That's my point. Worship is too. Worship lets us know that we're not in control. In fact, the very word that we use for worship in the New Testament in the Greek is this word proskuneo. Um, it, it, it means to bow down. That we are bowing our souls down, sometimes even bowing our whole bodies down. We're bowing our hearts and our minds that we're saying, you, God, you are in control of this situation. You are in control of my life. You are in control of this world, not me. Because worship shakes us from the control that we like to think that we have. If, if there was anyone, especially in the Bible, anyone who had, could make an argument that they were in control of something, it would be, the, it would be King David, uh, king over all of Israel, kind of one of the most powerful people in the entire land. And yet when we read the Psalms that he wrote, it doesn't sound anything like that. In Psalm 22, he says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to who? To the Lord. And he rules over the nations. Later on in the Psalms, we hear these three words over and over again. Psalm 93, one, the Lord reigns. Three of the most important words of the whole Bible. You could say that's the overarching theme of the whole Bible is that the Lord reigns, not me, not us, not anyone else. Paul himself, the very guy who's trapped in these stocks, sees the prison cells get, get torn apart from an earthquake. He writes to the Colossians, he says that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. Because he's seen Jesus shake things, tear them apart. Because he's the one who can. Worship shakes us from the control that we like to think that we have. Here's the other thing that worship shakes. Worship shakes our allegiances. That there are things in our life, that there are people, that there are patterns in our life, that there are priorities, that there are ideologies that we have made first. And maybe they just kind of started on the list and, and are somewhere along the way, they kind of got up here close to Jesus and then on par with Jesus. And then we felt like, okay, maybe Jesus would agree that those are that important or we attach them to Jesus. But then ultimately we let Jesus fall second to some of those things that we give our allegiance to some things that are, that are greater than Jesus in our life. Tim Keller, a pastor and author out of New York, and he sees this firsthand in the, in the congregations that he teaches and leads, people who make things more important, ambition, success, knowledge, intelligence, movements. They, he, says, he says, this is, the, this is the thing. He says, you don't get to decide to worship. Hear that? We all worship. You don't get to decide to worship. Everyone worships something. The only choice that you get is what you worship. That we will all give our loyalty and our honor and our time, our allegiance to something. But what is the something that you've been giving that allegiance to lately? What is the something that you've been giving your allegiance to that maybe God in, in our time of worship, even today says, I wanna, I wanna shake that allegiance from you. Look back at this passage in Acts. We kind of get a little bit of a glimpse of how this happens. I'm going to press the play button again on this passage we've been looking at. So remember, the jailer was about to kill himself. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We're all still here. We haven't gone anywhere. It says, everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are here. So the jailer called for the lights. He rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. 
He then brought them out and he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Which is an interesting question because he was fearing for his life so much that he was about to take it. And so he was maybe wondering, how do I be saved from the superiors, my Roman superiors who are gonna come punish me and take my life because of what happened on my watch? But I think he was also asking a bigger question because remember, he, he had just spent who knows how many hours and days listening to Paul and Silas pray and worship along with the other prisoners there. And he's saying, hey, hey, all those things that you were singing about, that God that you were praying, praying to, how do I get saved by him? I think in this moment, this jailer's realizing that even though he had some superiors in his life that he had given his allegiance to, there was something, someone that was even more superior than his own superiors. And right here, he begins to ask himself, how do I be saved by that superior? And so Paul and Silas tell him, they say, well, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, that you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all of the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and he washed their wounds. And then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and he set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. You see, it wasn't just the prison cells that got shaken that night. It was the jailer. His circumstances, his control, his, his allegiances they had been shaken too. And in a, pick, in a word, what he did was surrender. And that's what worship is, isn't it? Is that when we surrender all of who we are to all of who God is? That that's what's being shaken from our allegiances is? And then did you catch what happened? That he got baptized, he and his whole household. That he came to believe in Jesus as his savior and he got Baptized, And I wonder if you had gone to Paul and Silas at the beginning of this passage when they were in the stocks, if they could have even imagined that the very person who put them in those stocks would be baptized later. I think Paul and Silas would have said, absolutely, that's possible. Because Paul had had his own kind of experience like that. When he had seen the, po the power and the glory of God and it turned him in a different direction. And they celebrated these things with baptism. In just a few moments, we're going to get to celebrate with some people who are turning their lives to Jesus, who, who are declaring before us that Jesus has shaken them from their old life and shaken them into a new life. That Jesus has shaken them from the allegiances or circumstances or control, the ways that they used to live, and he's shaken them away from their sin through his death on a cross. And so he has shaken him toward a life of freedom and toward a life of purpose and toward a life following after Jesus with him as the very first thing in their life. And baptism is this an immensely personal decision that people make when they have been saved by Jesus, but they do it publicly as a picture to us of how Jesus has washed away their sin through his death on a cross. And that like Jesus was raised from the tomb, he raises us to walk into a new life. Because when we worship, when we give our life to Jesus, the powers of heaven intersect the powers of this world and it shakes us into that. And we get to be a part of this happening. And we get to celebrate with them and watch a page turn in their lives as these people get baptized with us in just a few moments. 
And maybe for those of you who have been baptized, this is a chance to look back and think of all that God has done in your life since then. If you're newer to church or to Jesus, this is a chance for you to observe and just see the beauty of what happens when Jesus's life intersects our own. But maybe for you, you're thinking, I've never been baptized. I love Jesus. I want to give my life to him, or maybe I already have, but I haven't taken this step that Jesus told us to take. I haven't made that declaration before my church family, before the world, that I'm living for Jesus above all. And if that's you, there's time, there's opportunity for you to be baptized this morning. There's a green flag in the back. And in a moment when those who have already planned to be baptized, they're going to move over here to this table when the band starts singing. But for you, if this is something you're thinking about, we can baptize you right here today. You just head to the back and one of our pastors, a couple of our leaders will be there to answer any questions, talk about that with you. Because the, Je the grace of Jesus is always waiting for us. It's always pursuing us. And today can be a day when you receive it. Today can be a day when you declare it before the world. So let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you so much that, that you shake us from things that need to be shaken from us. Lord, as we talk about worship, Lord, help us to be a people who declare, who willingly turn ourselves toward you, toward your greatness and glory and goodness, and giving those things to you. And as we worship now in these moments, and as we anticipate the baptisms that are about to happen, a time of such immense celebration, of seeing stories unfold, of seeing grace at work, of seeing people go into these waters of grace and come out new. Lord, we celebrate that you are a God who can do such great things in our lives. And we give you all of the praise, all of the glory, all of the greatness and goodness that you are due. Amen.